This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Colin Boyle. I'm Deputy Director for Global Health Sciences here at UCSF. And I'd like to thank all of you for coming out on this uh, rainy uh, morning today to learn about uh, the Zika virus. And I also want to thank uh, everyone who will be watching on live stream. We will be uh, uh, projecting uh, the events today on the YouTube, uh, the UCSF YouTube channel. Uh, we're here today to learn about Zika, and the Zika virus represents uh, a significant and uh, alarming global health threat. Uh, and uh, there's a lot we know about the virus and probably a lot more we don't know about the virus. And we're hopeful that today's symposium will be helpful in uh, illuminating those things and uh, giving us a path forward. Uh, before we begin, a few housekeeping notes. Uh, because we are live streaming this, I would ask everyone to please uh, turn off your ringer on your cell phones. Uh, it's important to uh, preserve that for the recording. Uh, we'll be having Q&A uh, through the, uh, the day at the end of each panel. And uh, since we, we do have people uh, watching on YouTube, uh, please wait for the microphones uh, for your questions. We'll have a, a brief period for that. And for those of you who are engaging in social media, we do have a, a hashtag that we would ask you to use for your tweets and posts, and that is uh, hashtag UCSFZika. Uh, all one word, hashtag UCSFZika. Um, without further ado, let me uh, introduce uh, our Chancellor, Sam Hallwood, to uh, come up and um, welcome us here today. Uh, for those of you who, who know uh, the Chancellor, he is uh, quite close to this issue. He's a, a pediatrician and someone who cares greatly about children's health and also about global health. So uh, without further ado, uh, Chancellor Horwood. Uh, thank you, Colin, uh, and uh, welcome everyone to, to UCSF, both uh, colleagues who are here uh, at UCSF and also colleagues who have come to the symposium uh, to hear, uh, I, I think, a wealth of information about this uh, rapidly spreading uh, viral threat to public health. Uh, as of yesterday, I believe there were seven confirmed cases in, in the Bay Area, but clearly uh, the impact of this is felt in uh, Central South America, soon probably in Puerto Rico, Haiti, uh, uh, areas are around the globe that uh, are far less equipped than we are to handle such uh, devastating uh, uh, infections. So in addition to thinking about our own local preparedness, which I know will be a topic for discussion later in the symposium, um, I think it's imperative that we all think about uh, what kind of a contribution UCSF and uh, the other institutions that are represented here uh, can make to the larger global scale of uh, this public health emergency. I'd particularly uh, like to uh, welcome and thank our colleagues who have come from UC Davis, from UC Berkeley, from Stanford, and the San Francisco Department of Public Health and the uh, California Department of Health who have uh, come together so quickly to help us put on a really outstanding program. Jaime um, Sepulveda and I spoke about this for the first time probably Two, three weeks yeah, three weeks ago, I think, and Jaime uh, uh, and his team in Global Health Sciences have uh, done a remarkable job in pulling together the program of such high quality uh, so quickly, and it's a real pleasure that UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals can sponsor this in combination with our Global Health Science uh, program. 
So I, uh, with that, I will now turn the program over to uh, Jaime, and I will take my place in the audience and look forward to a wealth of information. Thank you, Chancellor Howard, for your welcoming remarks. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. Thank you for attending this uh, SICA symposium, both in person um, and virtually through our live stream. This event, as Chancellor Howard mentioned, is sponsored by the UCSF Benny of uh, Children's Hospitals. My name is Jaime Sepulveda, and I'm the Executive Director of Global Health Sciences here at UCSF. I would like to thank our speakers uh, participating today, as I'm sure we will all benefit from sharing their knowledge and therefore educating both ourselves and also the public. The expertise we have gathered today uh, covers a huge range, from virology to ethics, from vector biology to economics, from clinical management to mathematical modeling. Certainly, we need a transdisciplinary approach to understand the Zika virus from various perspectives in order to effectively combat the Zika epidemic. In public health emergencies, and the World Health Organization considers the Zika pandemic to be one, there's a fine line between creating awareness and creating panic in the public. We need to avoid the latter while being fully prepared. The main reason to host this symposium today is to understand the nature of the epidemic and to share the scientific and clinical knowledge with our academic community, healthcare providers, and as I said, the public. Anticipation and preparedness are the key factors for a well-organized social response. The Zika epidemic illustrates three important things that we have to keep in mind. One, Zika is one more reminder of our increasingly interconnected and interdependent world. A sylvatic virus, isolated first from primates in the Zika forest of Uganda in 1947, traveled through Africa in the 50s, then through Southeast Asia in the 70s, then through the Pacific Islands, and eventually reached the Western Hemisphere in uh, Brazil last May, and since then, it has spread through 32 countries and territories in the Western Hemisphere. It is no surprise with two billion travelers boarding commercial airlines every year that this spread has happened so rapidly. Second, the Zika epidemic is also a reminder of our human vulnerability to infectious diseases. HIV, SARS, Ebola, chikungunya, now Zika, to name just a few, 
are recently emerged microbes, microscopic agents, causing much human suffering and with enormous health and economic consequences. Finally, the Zika epidemic is a reminder of the huge health inequities in the world. It is the poor people in poor countries that suffer the most. In here, our reliable public health system and geographical location and modern amenities are strong barriers against a large Zika epidemic in the continental US. But we already have imported cases in California, as Chancellor Howard, seven cases in the Bay Area, and we will see more coming into the future. We need to make sure that the CDC and FDA guidelines are well implemented for clinical care and prevention of blood transmission. I think uh, I'm convinced our UCSF Health and the local health care providers in the Bay Area are well prepared to deal with this. Of course, the, the odds that we will have endemic vector transmission of Zika in California are extremely low. However, we need to be aware that Florida and the U.S. Gulf states have all the conditions for a full-blown Zika vector-borne transmission. Puerto Rico is now having a doubling of cases every week. 40 million Americans travel each year to Zika endemic countries. The burden will even be greater for our neighbors to the south. Haiti, to take one example, faces the perfect storm for microcephalic babies with high mosquito density, high fertility rates, poor housing, and a very poor health system in place. Therefore, um, we need not only to think in this symposium about the consequences of Zika in the Bay Area, we also have to understand and communicate the larger perspective on a global scale. It is in the best interest of the uh, United States to help combat the epidemic wherever it is taking place. President Obama is recommending a $1.9 billion supplement in the budget to combat Zika, um, covering both research but also implementation of public health measures. What makes Zika such a horrific virus, in my view? One thing, Zika is a neurotropic virus. The avidity of the Zika virus for progenitor neural cells is notorious and makes this disease particularly tragic by attacking specifically the cortex of the brain of the growing fetus, it robs the new baby from the very condition, intelligence, which makes us a distinct species in the planet. Moreover, Zika virus is present in infected males, 
both in blood and in semen, converting these fluids, paradoxically, from vehicles of life to vehicles of disease. There are many things we do not know about Zika, which will require putting in place a robust research agenda, from vaccines to diagnostics to pathogenesis to therapeutics. I have my own random sample of questions pertinent to the various fields that we will be covering here today. For instance, in epidemiology, once infected with Zika, is immunity permanent? What about the 80% of asymptomatic cases? How long are, do they remain uh, infective? In pathogenesis, why is, it, why is it that some pregnant women infected in the first trimester have babies with microcephaly and others do not? How long is the virus present in the semen of infected males? Is breast milk safe or not? In public health, Aedes aegypti was eradicated from the Americas uh, for decades using DDT. Should DDT be considered for vector control in limited settings as a public health emergency? Five Latin American countries have officially recommended that young women postpone pregnancies for at least two years. When almost 50% of the pregnancies are anyways unintended, how are they going to enforce that? And if they do, what will be the demographic and economic impact of missing a birth cohort for two years? In ethics, abortion laws are restrictive in most Latin American and Caribbean countries. Now even the Pope has suggested flexibility about contraception. What impact will Zika have on social norms in the region? In climate change, what will the impact of global warming be on mosquito density and distribution? In economics, estimates of the cost of the epidemic range from 3.5 billion for the whole region to 70 billion just in Brazil. What is the real economic impact in economies that are so dependent on tourism, such as the Caribbean? As is frequently the case in medical sciences, we have more questions than answers. It is our hope that this symposium will help in discussing the issues, defining a research agenda, and informing health providers and the public. Now, um, the way we have this symposium organized is around panels. Each panel will have a moderator. I have asked moderators not to have lengthy introductions of the panelists, because you do have in the programs the bios of all of the speakers. We will just skip that. But it is now my privilege to introduce my dear friend Mary Wilson, who is a adjunct professor at the Harvard School of Public Health and also a visiting professor here at UCSF Global Health Sciences. 
Uh, Mary was the co-chair of a recent National Academy of Sciences workshop on Zika, and she has kindly agreed to give a summary of that workshop. Welcome, Mary. Thank you very much and good morning. It is a pleasure to be here and I look forward to learning a lot uh, during the day today. As Jaime mentioned, I was recently asked to co-chair the planning committee uh, along with uh, Professor Diane Griffin of, of Hopkins for a workshop at the National Academies that was held um, in, in February. The, the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness and Response, uh, Dr. Nikki Laurie, asked the National Academies, and now the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, to convene a meeting to try to identify research priorities. This was held in mid-February. It was focused on domestic, um, domestic issues and was, a public, was publicly open. The summary of this workshop has already been published. It is a brief summary. It is available freely online, and the location is given here. There also is an interactive format that is available online that includes some of the oral presentations as well as the PowerPoint presentations. So those of you who are interested in more detail can find that find those. I want to give just a brief overview of some of the highlights. The format was very simple. In the morning, we had 10 speakers giving scientific presentations, reviewing some of the research and initiatives already in progress and starting to identify some of the gaps. And these were around four, theme, four thematic areas. And these included epidemiological characteristics, virus vectors and reservoirs, disease pathogenesis and consequences of infection, and then final clinical management and public health interventions. In the afternoon then, we had four parallel sessions. Uh, each one could accommodate up to 50 of the participants, where there was a, some additional content presented, but they had two and a half hours to really discuss in detail and explore some of the gaps, uh, some of the important gaps and research priorities in those areas. And at the end of the day, the facilitators then presented those to the entire group. And let me just go quickly through some of these uh, that were identified. There were several themes or several uh, cross-cutting ideas that came up in multiple of the groups, and these included the need for sensitive, specific, accessible, and rapid diagnostics, the need for timely, accurate communication, communication Almost all of us are starting with very little knowledge of Zika. And so the public health community, providers, general uh, population, uh, researchers, I mean, everyone has a lot to learn. We need to make recommendations in the absence of complete data. 
we need sharing. Uh, multiple countries are involved, and people talked about some of the barriers that exist in moving specimens from one country to another. We need a common language. We need common definitions for some of the um, some of the issues we are dealing with. Uh, it's multidisciplinary, and we need to work in networks. We must find ways to begin to do research during epidemics. We can't wait until it's all over and tidy to start doing them. And a plea that came many times was uh, today it's Zika, last year it was Ebola, but we have to invest in infrastructure and basic research, not just disease or pathogen-specific uh, work. Going briefly to the four areas, in the epidemiological characteristics, um, we've already been hearing a lot of, we've already learned um, some uh, in recent weeks, what are the modes of transmission? We need enhanced surveillance. Um, Jaime also mentioned what are some of the factors that facilitate transmission or increase the likelihood of a poor fetal outcome? Um, how often does it occur? What are the risk factors? And some of these studies are already being put into place. There were many, many issues that came up about the virus vectors in reservoirs. We know that the Aedes mosquitoes, Aedes albopictus, and particularly Aedes aegypti um, are, are the main vectors apparently in the Americas, but are there other mosquito vectors that will also be competent? How important is asymptomatic infection in the epidemiology? We are learning that in dengue, another flavy virus, in fact, that asymptomatic infections can easily be associated with transmission. What about Zika? What is the role of vertical transmission in mosquitoes, from mosquito to eggs, uh, and then allowing the eggs to persist in dry and cooler periods of time? Is that important epidemiologically? The current vector con control strategies for Aedes aegypti, certainly in the, Ameri the Americas, are not working. If you look at the massive numbers of outbreaks and cases of, of uh, dengue, uh, also transmitted by the same vector. But what are some of the alternatives? Can Zika establish an enzootic cycle in the Americas? Yellow fever did. Yellow fever came out of Africa, and it now exists in an enzootic cycle in the Americas in non-human primates. Can Zika do the same? Uh, we need more information about the distribution of the vectors in the United States. And finally, we need models to help uh, assess uh, some of the, the rules of some of the interventions. Many gaps in the molecular understanding of the virus, the structure, the tropism, the cell receptor binding sites, uh, the cellular consequences following infection. With the recent very rapid spread and some of the complications, is any of this because of a change in the virus to make it more uh, able to be transmitted by the Aedes mosquito or to cause higher levels of viremia or some other change. We don't know yet. Uh, we need more information about the persistence, um, and particularly in favored sites. Does immunity follow infection? And one important issue that came up, I think, in most of the groups is what are the consequences of a previous Flavy virus infection like yellow fever uh, infection or vaccination, like yellow fever or dengue, do you see protection, enhancement, or altered clinical expression? We don't know yet. 
in the clinical arena, it is, it is very clear. Well, we need to define the full spectrum of the consequences of infection acutely, but then over the long term as well. Many decisions and recommendations have already been made about management of pregnancy, breastfeeding, travel, um, donations of blood and tissue. We need to establish the evidence base for each of these so that we can refine and give scientifically based recommendations. We spent very little time on uh, vaccines and pharmaceuticals because NIH is having a two-day meeting later this month in Washington uh, to really focus on those more specifically. Many people mentioned that Zika also offers an opportunity to allow us to improve long-term preparedness. Um, there was discussion repeatedly about doing research during a catastrophe, during an epidemic, but it means doing preparation in advance, having pre-positioning of standardized consent and study protocols. And we need to create, it's Zika this year, but we need to create a global health risk framework, build the architecture, um, the infrastructure to deal with um, emerging infections which are going to continue to appear. We had major omissions in what we discussed. We had one day, and among the really important ones, which have been mentioned here already, are the ethics and women's reproductive rights. And let me just finish by showing again, these are the two websites where you can find the, um, the, the brief report, but you can also find many of the slide presentations. Thank you very much. With that, we'd like to invite our first panel up. Uh, the first panel will be on epidemiology and prevention. It will be moderated by uh, Dr. George Rutherford, who's uh, vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. Mike. We also have uh, Mike Bush uh, from the Blood Systems Research Institute, where he's co-director and somebody who studies uh, bloodborne pathogens, and uh, Dr. Desiree Labode from Stanford, an associate professor who is uh, pediatric infectious disease who has uh, studied arboviruses. And you guys are... Uh, We're momentarily ready to take it away. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for uh, putting this on. So I'm talking about the epidemiology of, uh, of Zika virus. And the current, I'm really focusing on the current epidemiology. As Jaime mentioned, Zika virus was first discovered in 1947 in primates that have been purposely put in cages in the Zika forest uh, in Uganda. For those of you who have ever driven between the airport in Entebbe and Kampala, you've gone through the Zika forest, so it's not that exotic. Um, and it's, uh, uh, these uh, primates, this was being done for yellow fever, developed this new infection of Zika virus, and this was the first communication about this in, uh, from 1952. So, the virus was first detected serologically in humans in Nigeria in uh, 1968, and by uh, the end of the, uh, by, probably by the 1980s, 1990s, was endemic across much of eastern, central, and western uh, Africa. Uh, there was spread to Asia uh, in the 70s, and then really deeply into Asia, all the way into Indonesia uh, by 2007. And the thing to realize about Zika epidemiology is it follows the footprints of 80s aegypti. And for those of you who haven't seen this, 
Uh, this gives you an idea of the footprint, and we'll hear much more about this from uh, Professor Barker from Davis this afternoon. Okay. So more recently, Zika spread across the Pacific. Uh, it was in Yap Island in Micronesia in 2007. Much of the data that we are using to plan, for, for, plan with came from uh, French Polynesia in outbreaks in 2013. It entered the Cook Islands uh, in New, and New Caledonia in 2014, moving towards Australia. And I will make a small correction on Dr. Sepulveda. It first entered the Western Hemisphere in Easter Island, which is a possession of Chile. Sort of small little point here. Uh, in 2014, and then was uh, hit, at, uh, hit uh, Brazil in 2015. And it's now spread through tropical Latin America and the Caribbean. And we're going to show you some slides from the Pan American Health Organization, the sort of time lapse that shows the spread of the infection. Uh, and here you can see it spread into Guam and Micronesia, to French Polynesia, and then into Brazil and into, um, in, into the Caribbean. This also gives you an idea of the spread in the Americas from Brazil to uh, Colombia uh, to uh, Venezuela and Suriname and Mexico and Central America and then on into the, um, into, uh, the Caribbean and uh, the rest of, of Central America, which is now, if, if we had up-to-date slides, you'd have that on there. In the United States, Zika virus has been reported from the Federated States of Micronesia, obviously, from American Samoa, from Puerto Rico, where there are 102 indigenous cases, autochthonously transmitted cases, meaning someone introduced the virus, a human introduced the virus, it was picked up by a mosquito and transmitted to another human. Um, there, and one case in the Virgin Islands. <clears throat> there have been 154, as of this morning, uh, uh, travel-associated cases without autochthonous transmission, meaning people got them in Central America or Mexico or Brazil and came here during the incubation period uh, that have been reported from the U.S. states and Puerto Rico, uh, with the most in Florida, then uh, New York, Texas, and California. This is a list of countries uh, in which there is current infection um, uh, in, the, uh, in the Americas with current ongoing transmission. Um, the only countries that really aren't on here are Peru, and I suppose somebody could probably find them if they looked hard enough out in the Amazon, um, Uruguay, uh, Argentina, Chile, and Cuba, which also has to have it at some point in time. So this is really spread hemisphere-wide. Now, I was also asked to talk a little bit about sexual transmission, because um, Michael will talk about uh, bloodborne transmission. So remember of these you know, several hundreds of thousands of cases of Zika virus that we will have seen and will see, the vast, vast, vast majority of them are transmitted by mosquito bites. Okay? And as we'll hear more about this afternoon, Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopithecus are daytime feeders, so, um, so mosquito nets, while they're nice, don't really make a big impact. Um, there are eight confirmed cases of male-to-female uh, sexual, sexual transmission of Zika virus. Uh, in all of these cases, uh, there was intercourse before the onset of symptoms, a few days before the onset of symptoms. Presumably, and this is a major jump, but in virology, this is presumably the the period of peak viremia. Um, there have also been three cases of replication-competent Zika virus that have been isolated from semen between two and ten weeks after illness onset. Right? And this is a much longer persistence than people saw in blood. Uh, in all the cases of actual transmission, the men were symptomatic, 
and actually had hematospermia. So based on, I mean, but this is, you know, nobody really knows what the real spectrum is here. This is all the land of numerators, right? Um, what's really unknown is whether there can be transmission without symptomatic infection, and smart money says probably yes. And can there be transmission from women to men? Also smart money says probably yes, but these are big amplifiers. If you're symptomatic, you have hematospermia. If you're in the acute phase of infection, you're probably substantially more, um, more infectious. Uh, CDC currently recommends abstinence or condoms for men who've been exposed um, and their pregnant sexual partner. So if you have a pregnant spouse and you've been exposed or have had disease, current recommendations are use condoms or abstain from intercourse for the remainder of pregnancy. So just kind of wrapping around to the big question of why Zika and why now. Um, we have had lots of experience with exporting uh, organisms back and forth between the old world and the new world, and this is another example. Um, it's a new pathogen, not new, but it's a newly uh, disseminated pathogen that's been introduced into a non-immune population and has spread rapidly. Um, it's aided by the widespread presence of Aedes aegypti in the tropical Americas, even though we came very close to eradicating it in 1949. Uh, and I think that the, what we'll see especially if this vi the virus can overwinter in mosquitoes and mosquito eggs, um, this will likely remain endemic in the Western Hemisphere, much as West Nile virus has. Um, so on that happy note, I will turn to uh, Dr. Lebeau. Dr. Desiree Lebeau again is in the thank you. Dr. Lebeau is an associate professor of pediatrics in the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Stanford and the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. Thank you so much. Hi, good morning. Thanks for letting me come here and talk to you about my favorite viruses, arboviruses. So what I'm going to discuss today is really arboviral emergence throughout the last few decades. First, what are arboviruses? Arbovirus, of course, stands for arthropod-borne virus. These are viruses that require a blood-sucking arthropod to complete their life cycle. Many of these infections are zoonotic, so they impact animal populations along with human populations. And we know of at least about 500 of these viruses in the world today. They come from eight very diverse viral families, but there's three viral families in particular, the Togaviridae, the Flaviviridae, and the Bunyaviridae that are responsible for most of the human disease. And today I'll talk about one Togavirus, chikungunya, and I'll talk about two Flaviviruses briefly, dengue and West Nile virus. Every year, over a million people die from mosquito-borne diseases. Children are at risk of getting exposed to these infections because they're often outside and get bitten by a lot of mosquitoes. And West Nile actually demonstrated our vulnerability to these pathogens because we saw such widespread transmission throughout the U.S. of this exotic pathogen, and it caused so much human health impact. But now, of course, we're seeing recent introduction of more deadly arboviruses, and we're worried about their potential threat. I will remind you that although these viruses have a very global distribution, always remember that they're limited by the vector range. So if you don't have the vector, then you're not going to have circulation of that virus. I don't have time to go through a lot of, of life cycles with you today, but I just want to um, draw your attention to just a couple of, of these cycles because I'm going to talk about West Nile 
which is in the, I don't think this works, but it's on the far right corner. Um, West Nile, of course, operates in an enzootic cycle between avian reservoir hosts and Culex mosquitoes, and humans are actually dead in infections. Compare that with chikungunya here on the bottom left or dengue on the upper right, and you can see that although there's primate cycles, there are these um, urban cycles of both dengue and chick that operate only between humans and the, the mosquito vector, usually Aedes aegypti or Aedes albopictus. And that's also what we believe is probably most likely with Zika. We're unsure about animal reservoirs that might be feeding into this cycle. But right now we know that humans get high enough viremia amplitude and duration-wise to allow transmission just to occur between humans and the vectors. Over the last 20 years, we've really seen a dramatic resurgence or emergence of these infections in both animal populations and human populations. And these are epidemics thought to be caused by arboviruses that we thought were under control, but we're misthinking that, like dengue and yellow fever, or those who have expanded their geographic distribution, such as West Nile when it came here, uh, Rift Valley fever, which has now marched onto the Middle East, and then chikungunya. Why are these diseases emerging? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the influences of modern life, which Jaime brought up, quite a few of them. So first of all, we live in an urban world, a much more urban world than rural world, and so people are densely packed, and that makes for a lot of good mosquito feeding. We're changing our planet with a lot of deforestation, land reclamation, irrigation projects, and that, of course, changes the habitat and sometimes allows vectors to live where they couldn't live before. Unfortunately, our our world is full of military activities and war. This, of course, disrupts any sort of surveillance or control that was going on before that activity, and that has a major impact. We have climate change, weather events, heavy rains, all of that, again, can allow for successful mosquito breeding. And then, unfortunately, we have a very limited arsenal in our vector control toolbox. And so sometimes we have reduced or ineffective vector control for many reasons, which I'm sure will be discussed later on this afternoon. And then finally, I think one of the most important reasons, and one that Jaime brought up again, is increased transportation. And what we're looking at here is just a map of air traffic over 24 hours in the the world. And what you can see is that you can get anywhere within the world in about 24 hours. And 2 million 2 billion people, excuse me, travel aboard commercial airlines every year. And so do the viruses. So this is how the viruses see the world, right? They come in a human who's either symptomatically or asymptomatically infected. You travel across the world and you bring your virus with you. If it happens to be an arbovirus and the competent vector happens to be on the ground there, then there's a potential for risk for, an, for a cycle and an outbreak to begin. So briefly, let's discuss West Nile. I'm sure many of you are are familiar with West Nile. It, of course, is a flavivirus, and it made its Western Hemisphere debut in 1999 when there was an outbreak of encephalitis that was noted in New York City. And then over the next three years, West Nile marched westward across the U.S. until 2003 when it was responsible for the largest um, North American arboviral outbreak ever, where over 9,000 people were infected and there were hundreds of deaths. We all know now that West Nile... So circulates here now in a nice endemic cycle. And we still have human cases. I just pulled up uh, California case data from 2015, and you can see that many of the counties still have these cases. We're not seeing the explosive outbreaks anymore because there's herd immunity in both the avian reservoir population and, of course, in humans. But last year there were 2,000 West Nile cases in the U.S. locally locally. Um, Received. So, um, on to dengue. So, dengue is probably the most important flavivirus infection in the world still. Um, it's the most common one. It's a flavivirus. There's 400 million cases each year. We know there are four serotypes. It's spread by Aedes aegypti mosquitoes mainly, 
It can be quite deadly, severe dengue can be quite deadly, and luckily there's vaccines that are on their way and coming. You can see these maps here. Again, um, dengue is between the 10 degree isotherms because that's where the vectors live, so that's the, the part of the world that's most at risk. And you can see that the great burden of diseases in Southeast Asia right now and um, in Central and South America, but there is actually a lot of dengue also in Africa, which goes unnoticed. And we know that dengue risk in the world is also increasing. As the different serotypes spread across the world, more and more of the world gets hyperendemic for dengue, which, of course, promotes more severe disease. And you can see the dengue risk is, is these are models that were published in The Lancet, but you can see the dengue risk increases as the vector habitat increases. And we do have dengue here in the continental United States. We always have it in the borderlands in Texas. There was um, a CDC study that was done in the late 90s showing that about 50% of people in, in Laredo, Texas, were exposed to dengue and didn't know where they got it. But, of course, there's a lot of cross-border border travel. And so um, an outbreak that happened in Brownsville, actually the CDC was able to document local autochthonous transmission of dengue in Texas with people who hadn't traveled across the border. And then, unfortunately, in 2009-2010, the first cases outside of Texas since the 40s happened, and that's when dengue hit Florida. And there was a, a local outbreak in Florida, locally acquired dengue there. And that keeps occurring through the years. And in 2013, there were outbreaks in South Texas and in Florida. And then there was a locally acquired case all the way up in Long Island, New York. So someone who had stayed in Long Island got their dengue in Long Island. And if you look at this upper map here, you can see that we're, what we're looking at is the distribution of Aedes aegypti mosquitoes in, in the continental U.S. And you can see that extreme range goes all the way up, all the way up into Long Island. And so that's how these, these infections spread. On to chikungunya. So chikungunya is a togovirus um, transmitted by the same vectors, Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus. It causes a very nonspecific febrile illness that looks a lot like dengue, Zika, and all these other infections, except with chick, often people have arthralgias and arthritis, which can be a little bit of a tip-off that it might be chikungunya. And unfortunately, the, you get horrible joint symptoms for a few weeks during your infection, but then you can have severe arthritis or arthralgias that persist years after your initial infection. And the best estimates right now are about 40 to 50% of people who are infected end up with these long-term arthralgias, so very um, severe illness. And chick is emerging throughout the world right now. If we follow the blue lines here, there was a large outbreak that swept down the East African coast in 2004 um, and hit the Indian Ocean Islands, where there were a lot of vacationing European travelers. They all got sick and, and started to study chick, and then it went on to India. And as you can see by all the different colored arrows, India has seen a lot of chikungunya outbreaks in the past, but they noticed with this most recent one that it seems like this, the, the disease was a little bit more severe. More and more people were getting infected than prior outbreaks, and they weren't really sure what was going on. And then the virus went from India into Italy where it was um, caused a local outbreak in Italy. And so how did this happen? Well, it turns out that the virus mutated. There was a base pair change that allowed the new virus to, to really set up shop and have improved virus survival in a new mosquito vector, which is Aedes albopictus, which you can see by these maps here, are spread all over the tropical world, including all of southern Europe. And so the, the, the viral mutation was also thought to increase virulence and increase viremia loads in, in humans, kind of explaining maybe why the disease was more severe in India. So all of this happened, and Chick was, you know, really, really emerging all throughout Europe, causing outbreaks in France and Italy, and then it hit the Americas. So in 2013, Chick was noticed um, to be spreading in Martinique. It was introduced into Martinique, where there were local outbreaks, and then it spread like wildfire all throughout the Caribbean, all up and down Central and South America, and it continues to spread today. The outbreak continues to go on, although it's not getting much media attention. Um, 
At least a million cases have been happening in the Caribbean, almost two million cases all throughout Central and South America. Um, the, the virus is still spreading, and unfortunately, there's about nine million Americans that visit these areas each year, and so we're likely to see a lot more imported chikungunya cases in our clinics. So this is a map just showing chikungunya. It mirrors exactly what George showed you with Zika, all of the countries where, where it's been reported. And I just want to bring your attention to, of course, our Caribbean, which is Florida, has also had local chick spread. So again, why does this keep happening? Well, global travel, of course, moves these viruses around the world. Climate change, is, again, allows for new vector habitats. And then this urbanization versus resource-limited regions. So, um, I very much believe that arboviruses are neglected tropical diseases that affect neglected, neglected populations. So really impoverished populations are more often going to be exposed and then more often going to suffer the dire consequences from them. And I think we ignore this a lot of times. Another thing that we ignore is that we think that most of these viruses are something we can ignore because we think they're just, a, you get fever for a few days and then you improve and it's not a big deal. But as we're seeing with Zika here, there are these severe consequences of these infections. And there are severe consequences of a lot of these other infections that we're not really spending a lot of time talking about today. Um, but they're responsible for about five million years of healthy life lost. And it's not because of the febrile illness, it's because of these long, sort of subtle morbidities that, that um, these infections really cause. But unfortunately, we have very limit, limited data and they're severely underestimated in the world. I'll also say, why are we constantly taken off guard with these infections? You know, I think part of it is these diseases seem so far away. You know, you never heard of Zika before this. Um, I heard of Zika when it hit Yap in 2007 because there were very large outbreaks. But the problem is, is we sort of have a little bit of a reactive climate right now. Um, it's not very proactive, and so you can't get funding to study these things. The media doesn't draw attention to these things because they seem so far off. But we live in a very small world, and so we can't continue to have that sort of feeling anymore. And then I just want to highlight that there are a lot of other scarier infections that the United States is not well prepared for. And so just as Dr. Wilson mentioned earlier, we need to really think about preparing ourselves for some of these infections and thinking about the world as one world and not just us and them. Briefly, how do we prevent these infections? You all know this. We prevent exposure to the infected mosquito, either using repellents, protecting ourselves with clothing, getting inside where the vectors aren't, or cleaning out your local habitat and doing some local source reduction. Because again, these are homebody mosquitoes and they rarely, they rarely go very far from where they hatch. And so if you can clean up the local environment, you're likely to reduce your risk. And then of course, as we've already mentioned, the other rare, rare ways to get the infection through sex or, or blood screening, we can, we can talk about that. And the next speaker will be talking all about blood. The difficult thing here is that you actually have to change people's behavior in order to get them to, to decrease their risk. And this is very difficult do, to do unless they really feel that they're at risk. And so I think with Zika, we have a really um, a, a moment here where people are feeling at risk, so we could really do something big for, for this infection. So to conclude, arboviruses are very common in all parts of the world. They're causing large outbreaks all over the world, and they continue to emerge. These outbreaks devastate by both direct pathogen effects on humans that are infected, but also bystander effects on food, shelter, and care, which I didn't have very much time to talk about. For the first time ever in the Americas, we expect co-circulation of dengue, Zika, and chikungunya. And small local U.S. outbreaks of Zika are probably going to mirror just what we've seen with dengue and chick. I think a more proactive approach is needed to combat these continued arboviral emergence, and I thank you for your attention. Thanks. Thank you very much, Michael. 
So let me introduce Dr. Michael Bush, who's co-director of the Blood Systems Research Institute and senior vice president for research and scientific affairs for Blood Systems Incorporated. Uh, Mike is also a professor of laboratory medicine here at UCSF. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thanks, George. It's um, almost 35 years since we met in the research labs at the blood bank, and that was when uh, HIV was first hitting. In fact, my first slide here sort of emphasizes the progress that we've made, but also the challenges of just a continued uh, emergence of threats to blood safety. That peak in, in green there is the early epidemic in San Francisco of HIV, which actually peaked at over 1% of blood donations were transmitting HIV in San Francisco when George and I met with Herb Perkinson. And since then, uh, blood safety has been dramatically enhanced by improved both selection of safe donors, but particularly by the implementation of, of extremely sensitive tests, improved antibody tests, and then over the last now 15 years, nucleic acid testing for the major viruses, the hepatitis viruses and HIV. Uh, on the top right, you see, though, that every year for literally the past 15 years, we're, we're responding to a new potential threat uh, of an emerging infectious threat. And in, in red, I've highlighted the, the arboviruses that we've addressed. West Nile virus is just alluded to. In 1982, we, we observed the 23 cases of transfusion transmitted West Nile, which led within six months to implementation of nucleic acid testing of the blood supply in the U.S. And, and currently, we screen all blood donations for West Nile virus RNA using all round, all year round, a mini pool testing strategy. But whenever there's a local outbreak, either of clinical cases or detection of infections by what we call mini pool NAT, pools of six to 16 donations, we convert to individual donation NAT and interdict very low level viremic units. And since then, we've literally had no cases of transfusion transmitted West Nile, despite extremely large epidemics uh, intermittently. Uh, we've done a lot of studies on dengue virus and chikungunya virus, uh, as summarized and documented extremely high rates of viremia in donors and, and fairly high rates of transfusion transmission, but variable rates of disease uh, with transfusion transmission of these viruses. So one of the questions for blood safety is there are viremic donations, they are transmitted, but is the disease manifested in recipients of blood similar to that following mosquito acquisition? And we may be able to, to talk more about that. And of course, now we're dealing with chikungunya virus. One of the um, things we have gone through this, as sort of summarized, and so within blood banks, not only here in the U.S., but globally, you know, we have extremely efficient systems for testing and storing samples and, and epidemiologic studies, and we're, we're focused on uh, being proactive, if you will, to respond to potential infectious threats, to develop rational policies in terms of blood screening and donor deferral. Uh, because we do screen often, either in research studies or systematically, we generate large numbers of uh, large amounts of data on the dynamics of viremia because we identify asymptomatic individuals in acute infection uh, by RNA testing or nucleic acid testing and can enroll those people within a day. We have our results within a day and then can follow people longitudinally for months and understand the dynamics of viremia and immune responses and correlate these parameters with subsequent disease development because, of course, many of these donors are presenting in asymptomatic acute viremia, but many of them do develop symptoms downstream. So we can execute studies to inform pathogenesis and, and understand potential biomarkers of disease outcomes. And then uh, we build larger 
repositories of samples and execute very large zero surveys and studies that actually at the population level provide information as to the true magnitude of infection within a, an at-risk population by using the blood donor pool as, as a convenient sample but a large representative sample. We both can in detect the acute infections but also by doing, doing zero surveys we can ascertain the proportion of a population that's been exposed and correlate that with clinical disease. So for many of these viruses I believe that the blood, blood banking data data actually provide incredibly informative data uh, around epidemiology and pathogenesis. Now, as mentioned, with Zika virus, the vast majority of transmissions are from mosquitoes. Uh, serious concern we'll hear a lot about, we all know about, about maternal fetal transmission. Low rates, but, but clearly evidence of sexual transmission. With respect to blood transfusion, there are two well-documented now cases of transfusion transmission in Brazil. Uh, but again, this is really just the tip of the iceberg because no one has done systematic testing of the blood supply or follow-up studies of, of recipients of viremic blood, which are in progress. Um, interestingly, there are also three sickle cell patients in Brazil who died uh, of, of probable or, or uh, Zika virus infection. Now, it's not clear whether they got it from blood transfusions or from community, but these were acute deaths attributable to Zika on top of a, a pre-existing um, transfusion-related uh, or, or blood disease, sickle cell, which is transfusion-dependent in many patients. Importantly, during the French Polynesia outbreak, uh, the scientists there uh, measured the rates of viremia in blood donors, and 2.8% of blood donations during the epidemic in Tahiti were viremic for, for Zika. So in terms of what we can do to address this, we have uh, nucleic acid testing. Fortunately, our large central testing laboratories, and, and similarly in many other countries, um, have the capacity to do nucleic acid testing now and the ability uh, in partnership with industry colleagues to develop extremely sensitive tests, and that's in progress. There are also methods for inactivation of viruses in blood called uh, pathogen reduction that uh, actually several companies here in the Bay Area are involved with. Uh, and these are effective, but are only available currently for research under IND on platelets and plasma. Uh, we can also curtail donations uh, and defer donors, but when you've got a large epidemic within your own population, where do you get the blood from? And we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, so the FDA did, in response to the concerns around Zika, uh, about three weeks ago issued a, a new guidance document, which is essentially bears the force of, of regulation. And it divides the policies into two different uh, epidemiologic settings. The first is for areas without active transmission. And essentially, every place uh, south of the continental U.S. is considered active transmission now. So all of Mexico, Puerto Rico, all the Caribbean islands, all of South America. In this setting, uh, in, those se in the settings like in the continental U.S., we're, we're now deferring all persons who've traveled to or have had sexual contact with a person who's been in these Zika at-risk locations. So uh, a lot of donors are being deferred, particularly along the Texas border, where, as alluded to, there's a lot of people who move back and forth from Mexico to the U.S. So about 25% of prospective blood donors now coming into blood banks in, in South Texas are being deferred essentially indefinitely because of simple travel across the border, even though Mexico's actually had only a handful of autochthonous cases. But the real problem is if you're in a region that has active transmission. And the example that's under the, under the regulatory authority of FDA is Puerto Rico. So if you have active, if you're considered a Zika risk region, then you're essentially not allowed to use blood that's collected locally. So at this point, 
effective this week, all blood transfused in Puerto Rico is being imported from the continental U.S. with funding supporting that from the CDC. So essentially, the whole infrastructure of local blood collections in Puerto Rico has been severely impacted by the requirement that they no longer collect blood from their, their donors. Uh, and the, the opportunity, though, is that if they can put into place either pathogen reduction or nucleic acid testing uh, under IND, which is an FDA term for uh, accelerated regulatory research to the, uh, with respect to these tests, then they can transfuse that blood. And so we've been working very aggressively with the FDA, CDC, and the manufacturers to uh, develop these assays and validate their performance. So it's the first item here uh, in terms of efforts to protect both the Puerto Rico blood supply but then the continental U.S. It's critical that we have nucleic acid, sensitive nucleic acid tests to implement screening. Once that screening is implemented, which it will be within the next one to two months, then we'll begin to identify lots of viremic donors. And that's when our systems, if you will, turn on from our prior experience. So we'll, with funding from NIH, we'll enroll these donors into very rapid and longitudinal follow-up to characterize the viral dynamics, the distribution of the virus in blood compartments, in semen, etc. So it's really the blood donor uh, follow-up data that will provide a lot of useful information on the course of asymptomatic or symptomatic infection. Uh, we'll also, again, be asking donors about development of symptoms, so be able to correlate the uh, clinical uh, findings with the biomarkers in blood. We're also collaborating with colleagues here in the room at UC Davis uh, and have uh, preliminary funding and are likely to get substantial additional funding from NHLBI in the upcoming month to really execute very careful studies of transfusion transmission Zika virus in macaques to really understand the minimal infectious dose, the effectiveness of this testing at prevention of transmission, and the effectiveness of these pathogen reduction technologies which uh, are intended to kill the virus um, uh, before uh, and all viruses uh, preventing transmission. Uh, one of the critical things that we've done is to develop standards. So we have viral isolates as well as plasma from uh, persons in Brazil who were implicated in transfusion transmission, and we create uh, coded blinded panels with serial dilutions of these assays to assess the sensitivity of different assays. And this slide is showing uh, data on the uh, the efficacy of the CDC. PCR assays performed in three different labs, the, the lab in Fort Collins where uh, Rob Lanciotti first developed these assays, the, the, the central lab in Puerto Rico, and, and then our lab here in San Francisco. And we can see that the, the CDC assays have 50%, that line across the, the center is the 50% limit of detection of around 100 copies per ml. And I can tell you without being allowed to show you the data that the NAT assays that we'll be using to screen the blood supply are probably 50-fold more sensitive than that. They can detect virus at much lower levels and using very automated instruments that, that yield those results within 24 hours. So we're really working very aggressively to make those assays available. Initially, they'll be Zika-specific, but both the major companies that produce these assays have prototype assays that can detect Zika, dengue, and chikungunya simultaneously and discriminate all three viruses. So that's really the goal over the next uh, year or so is to bring forward triplex assays. We have a strong collaboration with Brazil that's been ongoing for 20 years uh, in a program called the REDS-3 program, which funds four hemocenters within Brazil. Uh, this has been funded for the last 10 years and continues for the next five. So we actually had a transfusion transmitted chikungunya study that was scheduled to launch next month in, in uh, the Sao Paulo region, and that's now been modified to incorporate Zika. 
uh, and will document the rates of transfusion transmission and the clinical consequences of transfusion transmission. We're working with the Brazil hemocenters, uh, the, the ones shown in the, uh, with the stars, which include Rio de Janeiro and Recife, uh, which are highly uh, at risk for, for Zika, and monitoring their pools for prevalence of viremia in their donor population. We're also focused on sickle cell disease patients to better understand the impact of Zika virus, whether it's transfusion or mosquito-borne transmission on the sickle cell disease uh, infections. And then finally, a proposed study that's really looking at maternal fetal transmission and uh, efforts to identify biomarkers of uh, both maternal infection and of congenital disease. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we have we have an open line and have calls coming in. So, Colin, do you have the first one, please? Thank you both very much. Good. Uh, thanks, George. We we do have uh, folks who have submitted some questions on the live. We would all like to invite uh, people to in the audience to ask questions as well. Uh, one question from the remote audience is, what about blood products? Has testing started on safe fractionation methods? Mike? Well, I think what they're referring to in terms of blood products are what are called plasma derivatives. So what, what, what happens is, separate from the regular whole blood volunteer blood donation program where you're transfusing red cells or platelets or plasma to patients, there's a whole separate large industry that manufactures derivatives from pooled plasma collections. And these are treated extensively with pathogen inactivation techniques. So this, th these are extremely safe with respect to all viral transmissions. There's not been a transmission by a plasma derivative in the last 15 to 20 years. So I'm confident that there's no risk to hemophiliacs or other recipients of these derivatives. Thanks, Mike. Um, and then one other question, although this may um, relate to the panel uh, that will follow. Um, why don't we take antibodies from virus survivors and de design immunogens and use them as vaccines? I don't know if you want to comment on that or defer that. <laughs> well, I'll take that. I mean, antibodies, one, are not vaccines. They're, they're passive immunotherapy. They were obviously a big area of focus with respect to, to, to Ebola. And the, uh, the, although the monoclonal antibody cocktails of the studies weren't able to be executed completely, showed slight efficacy. Passive immunotherapy with blood donor-derived high titer antibodies showed no efficacy. There's concern that this, you know, that this Zika outbreak, that there could be the kind of enhancement it was alluded to that it's the problem with dengue. So whether by passive antibody or by vaccination, it's theoretically possible that Zika disease could be worse in people who've been partially immunized across these different viruses. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Got questions from the audience, please. Thank you. Please. How do people in the mosquito or arbovirus field uh, feel about new genetic technologies with respect to decimating mosquito populations like gene drive and CRISPR? Thank you. I'm glad you asked that question. You sit tight till 1 o'clock, and you'll, and you'll hear it all. Uh, Professor Barker from Davis had to teach a class this morning that he's coming down and sort of look specifically at vector control issues. Claire, Dr. Brindis. Given the longer history of Zika that you outlined for us, has there been a history of the congenital malformations that we see now? 
Desiree may want to ask, answer this as well. Um, the, the, in, in the French Polynesian outbreaks, they reported severe disease, which is really defined primarily as leukopenia, uh, on the order of like 1 in 10,000. It was a fairly low number. Um, Desiree, you want to answer yeah. too? Hello. Oh, I don't know if this is okay, here, here we go. Um, so in the YAP outbreak, so before, before 2007, Zika, there were just a handful of cases all throughout Africa, like he mentioned. And then in, when it hit YAP in 2007, 75% of the population of YAP, which is only a few thousand people, but still 75% of the population um, was affected. Um, unfortunately, there weren't good thresholds then to really show you know, that this was an uptick in microcephaly cases because there's no baseline recorded. But when the outbreak started happening in French Polynesia in 2013, there is sort of a baseline there. And although, again, you only see these um, rare um, manifestations when you have very large naive populations which were being exposed, but they did, so they didn't notice the increase in microcephaly when the outbreak was happening because they weren't seeing that many more cases because the population is not that large. But when they went back to look at their data from um, in French Polynesia, they did notice that there was an increase in microcephaly during the time when the virus was circulating. And, and I think it's so strong the analogy. Yet, yeah. can we get a microphone over here, please, Solange? Yeah, okay. Oh, back there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The, no one's drawn the analogy yet, but the rubella outbreak of 1964, while not a mosquito-borne disease, it has, I think, a lot of similarities in terms of severe pathology in, fetal, uh, in, in, in fetuses and uh, with uh, really lifelong um, consequences in, in even mild infection. Please. Yeah, please. So I was saying, um, normally when one sees these epidemics that uh, you know spread like a wildfire and in the first few years and then slow down a little bit, I mean the common wisdom is that there is some immuno immunity building in the human population. But when you look at West Nile, that is this additional cycles in other vertebrates or you know like uh, birds and so, is that you know, justified to say that the slowdown of the epidemic is due to um, immunity in the vertebrates? Do we have enough information about that to predict and, you know? So I was going to ask Dr. Lebeau to answer the question about herd immunity. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, so, so um, yeah, I, I think... Herd immunity, as he's saying, is, is very important to, to the, the <coughs> dynamics of the outbreak. So initially, when you have large, naive populations, you're going to have huge numbers of people at risk, so you'll see huge numbers. And then as the population becomes exposed, those numbers will go down. The feeding of, um, you know, for West Nile avian reservoirs or for other arboviral infections, maybe other reservoir species, um, they're constantly maybe introducing virus into the human population, but if the population is already exposed and immune, you're not going to have, you're not going to see large cases. Now, of course, with children being born and those sorts of things, you, you will have, and, and with movement of people, and of course, not everyone is exposed during the outbreak, so you will see, um, you will constantly have susceptible people over time. It's just that you don't have as many. Um, and so the, 
the endemicity um, is established when, when there is really some herd immunity among maybe reservoirs, if that's important to the cycle, and then also in human populations. Yeah, just to add, I mean, we've done serial surveys of donors a decade after West Nile came in in places like North Dakota, North Texas, that have had just recurrent seasonal, some huge epidemics. And with West Nile, less than 10% of the population has actually been infected. So it's mostly, I think, bird-related in terms of wiping out the, the major bird uh, vectors. In contrast with chikungunya, in a single season in Puerto Rico, a quarter of the population became infected. And in most of these countries that we're talking about, 90% of the population has been infected with one or multiple dengue viruses. So with these really rampant uh, chikungunya dengue type infections, incredibly infectious. And I think the same will bear out with Zika. We're going to see huge, huge proportions of the population demonstrated by sur surveys. The, the challenge is the serology tests are really problematic with due to the background dengue. We have time for two more questions. Please. Hi, uh, Dr. Rutherford. You mentioned um, two to ten weeks for Zika in the semen. Do we know that ten weeks is the outer limit, or do we have it's evidence the last positive for what that test is? they've done. Yeah. But are we still looking? Yeah. So we don't know if it's Not more than ten weeks. Yeah. Yeah. The CDC is still looking. Believe me. Yeah. Okay. And, and you know the, the the experience with Ebola is that they can isolate virus from semen really for a long time, yeah, a lot longer than that. Hi. Do, do you have any updates on the cases of microcephaly in Colombia and why there is such difference between, like, what is your hypothesis that, you know, in Colombia where a few thousand uh, pregnant women were exposed and infected by Zika, they are, there were very few cases or no cases yet of microcephaly? I know. That, I mean, that's what the, the WHO is kind of monitoring, but those women are not delivering until May or June. So we're just watching and waiting, and that there doesn't seem to be active, uh, you know, ultrasonography and stuff to, to monitor these kids. So it's, unfortunately, I, I think the answer is going to be a problem. Let's see. We'll, we'll have the battling, battle of the two chiefs of ID here. Let's, uh, I guess we're going to settle um, on our southern neighbors. I just wanted to respond to that because um, I, we actually had a Brazilian member of the uh, Committee on Infectious Diseases for the American Academy of Pediatrics report to us in October, October 25th, about Zika virus and the outbreak in, in Brazil. And he said, ah, and it's really benign. There's a few cases of GBS, et cetera. And this was an outbreak that had started in May. And so a week later, he emailed us and said, guess what? So I think the issue is that it depends on the surveillance system, how the reporting is work, works, and also you have to wait for that incubation period and the gestational period of the women. So things can really turn um, over the course of time, and I'm not sure that each country is at the same place as Brazil was in May. Okay, we're now at the, at the witching hour. Uh, so we're going to turn it over to a basic science panel that will be moderated by Dr. Maldonado, uh, who's a professor, director of global child health, Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases and the Associate Dean for Faculty Development and Diversity at Stanford. Thank you, Bonnie, for coming. And just uh, one comment for those watching on the live stream. Uh, if you have questions, please feel free to post them on the site, and we will uh, do our best to pose them to our panelists. Good morning, and thank you uh, for inviting me and my colleagues from Stanford to talk about this important topic. 
Um, I'm not a basic scientist, but I am a poliovirologist. Uh, I work in molecular and lab, uh, molecular epidemiology of polio, which is another uh, positive strand, uh, single-stranded RNA virus. So I'm going to talk a little bit about virology and relationship to other flaviviruses, primarily because we don't have a lot of information about Zika, and so we're going to do a lot of comparisons to the other flavies. So uh, what we know about Zika is that it's a member uh, of a very large family of viruses. There's probably at least 70 different members, um, but they are generally, um, and they include uh, diseases such as yellow fever, dengue, Japanese encephalitis, and West Nile virus. But this virus on the phylogenetic tree is most related to another virus that's uh, more common in Africa called the Spondueni virus. They all share um, the characteristics that they're enveloped, spherical, about 40 to 65 nanometer uh, viruses, and they're single-stranded positive RNA viruses um, with a genome of about 10 to 12,000 nucleotides. One of the interesting things about this particular virus is that it acts like the other single-stranded uh, positive RNA virus is that it produces a single polyprotein, which is then cleaved pre- and post-translationally to produce the 11 proteins, which then assemble, replicate, and then bud. Um, the mature virions are enclosed in a capsid and surrounded by a membrane, and I'll show you more pictures about that. It's there's a, the virus itself, the virion, is composed of a lipid bilayer, one RNA genome per capsid, and three distinct viral proteins, which I'll talk about in a bit. They're the, C, the E, the M, uh, MPRM protein, and the C protein. And here you can see the phylogenetic tree of the Zika viruses. I didn't include all of the flavies because that tree is quite large, but here you can see, um, do I have a pointer? Does that work? Yes. So you can see here that the um, early viruses uh, seen in Africa, here the other flavies are, are related but um, obviously distinct. And then you see the earlier African lineage viruses, and more recently you see the American uh, viruses that are very clearly related to the um, Asian strains, and then, of course, these American viruses seem to be genetically uh, very close to those. And whether or not, as uh, Dr. Lebeau alluded to, there may be some uh, viral um, mutations that are, that are uh, making the, the Asian virus more fit is really not clear whether there are other issues as well, such as climate issues and vector issues. So that's a big area of interest at this point. Um, if you look at the, um, the actual virus itself, um, you can see here, this is a typical um, vi viral, and I'll show you some electron micrographs. Um, the, the interesting thing here about these viruses is they do have a membrane, and this E protein is very important. It is embedded in the, e, in the membrane, um, and then you see, I'm sorry, I'm trying to, you see the, um, the one RNA genome that's embedded with the capsid protein here, and then what happens is you wind up uh, having, with a single-stranded RNA uh, virus, you wind up with a five-prime and a three-prime uh, untranslated region uh, with structural proteins at the beginning of the five prime region and then eight non-structural proteins later on with a complex series, uh, actually a relatively simple series of cleavages and assembly, which I'll show you in a bit. So the critical, one of the, well, they're all important, but the, probably the most critical flavivirus protein, and this is probably true for Zika as well, is the E protein. And this is the major surface protein that I, show you, that I showed you that was kind of um, 
protruding from the membrane. And this is largely responsible for targeting the virus and actually for host cell receptor targeting, um, followed by fusion of the virus and then cell entry. The other important issue here, and this is why most of the vaccines that are being looked at, for example, for dengue virus and for yellow fever um, as well, um, really involve neutralizing antibodies to the E protein. It is a major target and the major target for um, uh, for human uh, neutralizing antibodies. However, what's different about the dengue virus compared to Zika, well, we don't, well, actually, we're not sure about Zika, but to the other viruses, for example, yellow fever, is that um, the dengue virus elicits antibody-dependent enhancement, again, what you see with the second uh, heterologous infection, so that you wind up with um, a, a very enhanced antibody response, which can lead to the hemorrhagic fever. And that's actually uh, related to antibodies to the pre-membrane protein, not the final membrane protein. So again, a little more complex interplay around the virology, the viral structure, and the antibody responses to those virus uh, structures. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, there we go. So this is just a, a very brief summary of the flavivirus life cycle here. You see viral attachment cell entry via the E protein. Simple virus, uh, everything happens in the uh, cytoplasm. The virus replicates here. It acts very much like MR, cellular mRNA, um, is uh, uh, transcribed into a polyprotein, which then uh, is cleaved and then buds out from the endoplasmic reticulum. Here, at this area, the pre-membrane protein is, is cleaved, and that creates an active uh, budding uh, uh, functional and mature virus. Now, if you look a little more carefully here, you can see this is the general structure of all the flaviviruses, again, with the five prime here, three prime on this end. And you can see that all of these pieces, um, that all of the action really on the, on the, cap, on the, uh, uh, the immunity side that we think of it so far happens here at the five prime end. And then finally, when you look at Zika compared to the other viruses, again, this is very preliminary data. This comes from, uh, uh, part from the National Academy of Sciences uh, slides that were shown by Dr. Kuhn et al. And you can look at those up um, when you, if you look at the website that uh, Dr. Wilson showed us. But you can see that there are some potential areas here where the viruses may have some heterology, which may actually lead to differences in immunity. We're not quite sure. And these are all in the structural proteins here. So if on this end, you would see the eight non-structural proteins. So if, for example, there are differences in protein size, sequence and structure, um, probably the, the oligom olig oligomer formation, and I'll show you something around that, and then some post-translational uh, changes as well. But you can see that in general they're very similar, and whether or not there are very small differences in the viral structure, um, and which may affect uh, pathogenesis, may, is, still needs to be dealt with. Now, CUNIT also showed this data, which is unpublished, looking at uh, re percentage of homology of Zika virus, uh, and this is the strain up there, uh, HPF 2013, um, and with other flaviviruses. And you can see the the, the um, Zika of interest there in the middle with the red bar, and you see that. There's very little homology, actually, if you look at some of these target areas, especially here in the, um, the pre-membrane protein, which, as I said, may be involved with ADE, may also be involved with neutralized antibody to a certain extent. And here's the E protein, a little more homology. Now, this is, of course, another Zika strain, so very similar. I would also caution that when people talk about the progenitor neural stem cell um, 
uh, uh, cytotoxicity of the virus, that that strain that was used um, in, the, in tissue culture is not the strain that's widely circulating right now in Brazil. So it may, it is probably going to have the same pathogenetic uh, impact on the neural crest cell, the neural uh, progenitor cells, but we don't know that for sure. Um, and you can see here that overall, in terms of percentage identity of the important, two important structural proteins and two non-structurals, is that they're relatively low. So we don't really know exactly how this virus is going to play out relative um, to the other uh, flaviviruses. Now, when you look at the structure, I'm going to show you how dengue works, because we don't really have any pictures of the Zika, and none that I was able to find anyway. And the, the organizational structure of these viruses, as I said, they're icosahedral and symmetrical. Um, you can see that there's a T3-like organization structure of the surface dimers here, They're quite, uh, st uh, quite um, uh, stereotypic. And here you can see the three different pieces here uh, that form each of the surface dimers. And how the evolution of that occurs is quite important because they go from being uh, very unstructured, immature uh, vi virions to partially mature and then to fully mature virions. And the way this happens, it has to do with the pH and the temperature around the cellular replication. So you can see the continuum there, but what's very critical to this is the PRM cleavage, so that's the pre-membrane protein cleavage, going to, from an infectious particle to really condensing down into the very symmetrical uh, virus that we see there. And this also, PRM, as I mentioned, influences the antibody response because in, during the formation of those variants, you'll see antibody to the PRM, which can induce ADE, or at least it's been associated. And here's what I'm talking about in more detail. So here you see the uh, fairly uh, structured but uh, not mature variant maturing into a full particle. And here you see how well structured these dimers have become. These are changes in pH. Um, these all occur in the, uh, in, the, in the cytoplasm, primarily in the, in the endoplasmic reticulum. But what you see essentially is cleavage of this PRM portion it, with an E-heterodimer into a, just an E-heterodimer, and you see how well these all fit together, and you go from this structure here to this very, very well-organized and, and uh, a symmetrical structure, which is then, again, the fully mature and infectious virion. And this is actually from uh, Sirohi Chen, Rossman, and Kuhn, unpublished data that was presented at NA NASM uh, regarding uh, and EM uh, images of the actual Zika itself. And so the big questions we have, and I'll stop here, is, um, what is what is the PRM membrane and other structural and non-structural proteins related to, uh, to structural dynamics? What is the mutation? Are, are there, is there evidence now of muta that mutation of some of the non-structural proteins may be related to the change in Zika virus uh, prevalence around the world in some part, at least in some part? Um, there is evidence that that may be the case, but it's not clear that that's the, that, uh, what the relationship is to other factors. Virus infectivity, how important is that, um, et cetera, and all, moving all the way out to disease and pathogenesis. So clearly, we need to understand the structure of the virus and its relationship to other um, Zika viruses that have, uh, had, that have been uh, circulating over the last uh, 40 to 50 years. And so finally, important unknowns about Zika structure um, and their imp impact in this uh, epidemic um, include that these, we know that dengue viruses, for example, are pleomorphic. Is that true for the Zika viruses? Are there other important differences? 
compared to other flavies that affect uh, the immune response that affect pathogenesis. Clearly, as we heard from the cell stem cell paper that came out from John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins on Friday, that there appears to be some structural issues that really render these viruses um, quite uh, neurotropic, um, at least in fetal progenitor, neural progenitor cells. So again, what is the role of the variable PRM content? And a lot of these temperature and pH changes that affect protein dynamics. Um, how do differences in Zika structure compare to dengue and affect the immune response? And then again, um, is tropism in cell entry as well. And so I'd like to thank you for your attention. Here's some references. You can have those. I think these will be posted later. And um, I'll, we'll move on to our next speaker. Thank you. Do you want to stay, sit, or do you want to, if you're welcome can, to sit I'll stand, I'll, I'll stand. That's fine. Okay. Or so. you can have a seat. Oh, okay, yeah. great, thank you. Thanks. Our next speaker is actually Susan Fisher. Susan is a UCSF professor of OB uh, gynecology and reproductive sciences and is a, one of the world's leading experts on the placenta. So thank you, Susan. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak today. Um, I'll be talking about the placenta, and I think in uh, the complete um, drama of the brain manifestations of Zika virus, I think it's oftentimes forgotten that the way the virus gets to the infant is through the placenta, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. So the placenta is the cake-like structure that attaches the baby to the uterine wall. And in humans, it has a very unusual structure. And that is a part of the cells of the placenta called cytotrophoblasts. Those cells become invasive tumor-like cells shown on the right that are able to modify maternal blood vessels. So they open up those blood vessels and they spray blood on the placenta. And I'll also draw your attention to the fetal membranes which circle the baby in blue. And the fetal membranes are also another possible site of transmission. So this further clarifies the sites that where virus transmission might occur. Uh, panel A shows the placenta proper in those tree-like structures or floating chorionic villi that actually float in maternal blood. And the membranes are depicted in panel B, which is box, the B box in panel A. And the, the membranes are comprised of trophoblasts of the smooth chorion, which are in contact with the maternal uterine wall and deciduous cells, and the amnion, which faces the baby. And in panel C are anchoring villi of the placenta, and those are the cells from which the invasive trophoblasts launch to invade the maternal blood vessels and open up blood supply. 
So we've been very interested in doing gene expression around the whole extraembryonic compartment. And I'll give credit as I go along. This work was done with the Epigenome Roadmap Project. And we were, with them, were able to accumulate RNA-seq data from the entire extraembryonic compartment. So the bands were on the top show the compartments we profiled, which included amnion, smooth chorion, basal plate, which is the anchoring villi together with the maternal cells, the chorionic villi, and then purified cytotrophoblasts. And four putative Zika receptors are shown on the right. The most important is thought to be AXL. And uh, we can see AXL is primarily expressed in the chorion, smooth chorion, and the amnion. In other words, the fetal membranes. And DC sign, or C, uh, CD209, is in the basal plate. But work from my group in which we've taken a much carefuler look, not just at regions, but in specific trophoblast cell types, has shown that Axel is actually in the invasive cytotrophoblast that entered the uterine wall. And there's also enhanced in this population expression of DE sign. And this work was done by Matthew Gormley in my lab. So we took this data and wanted to get protein level backup for it. And I hope you can see this. I don't know if we need the lights down or not, but let me take you through this. These are floating villi. So these are the villi that are floating in maternal blood. That's why they look round. And you can see this is at seven weeks of gestation. And on the left, we have Axel and CD209 being immunolocalized. And I think you can see a very stark picture there of these receptors being on the surface of the placenta. So this is at six weeks. And here are the anchoring villi. And these are the ones that attach the placenta to the uterine wall. This is at 11 weeks, and you can see the two putative receptors on the left. You can see the trophoblast cells that are moving from the rounded villi into the uterine wall in the directions indicated, and you can see these two receptors are right there to bridge viral passage from the uterine wall to the placenta proper. If we look later in gestation, then we see that protein expression of the putative viral receptor seems to be reduced. And instead of being in all the trophoblast populations now in the second trimester, the axle expression now is in very much a glycoprotein-like pattern at the surface of the chorionic villi. 
And we can also see the direction of the arrow shows trophoblast invasion of the uterus. And as you can see on the left, we still see axle expression in this region. And as I mentioned, it looked like from our RNA-seq data that the highest receptor expression was in the placental membrane, so we definitely looked in this region. And here we have axial expression, and labeled are the decidua and the smooth chorion, and I think you can see a very stark picture of this receptor being expressed on the surface membrane of literally every decidual cell. And if you look in the smooth chorion, you can also see in some patches here, a small patch, but I'm going to show you more, that this receptor is also expressed in the smooth chorion. These are trophoblast cells. So if we move deeper into the membranes, the axle is expressed in big patches along the trophoblast cells of the smooth chorion and also by amniocytes, so every single amniocyte. And um, if we look at CD209, you can again see that the decidua, which is labeled here, the maternal uterine cells are expressing very high levels of this potential receptor this lectin-like receptor in a pericellular pattern. And this receptor we do not see expressed in the fetal membranes. So based on these pictures, we're proposing that there are many ways that this virus can get to the fetus. As shown um, marked, as markups on my original anatomical diagram, we think that the virus can go through the fetal membranes being transmitted from the decidua. We also think, as shown in panel B, that the passage would be through the chorionic trophoblasts, which express axle, through the amniocytes and into the amniotic fluid. And on the last panel and C, we think there could also be retrograde transmission from the uterine wall up through the invasive trophoblast cells back to the placenta and the fetal blood vessels there. So we think in a way this is a perfect storm where the placenta has the architecture both physically and molecularly to transmit this virus. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Thanks. Our next uh, speaker is uh, John Marshall, who is uh, assistant professor at uh, the Berkeley School of Public Health and an expert on epidemiological modeling. Oh, thanks very much for inviting me. Have we changed slides? Oh, yeah. um, so I actually I uh, work on malaria modeling with the Malaria Elimination Initiative at um, UCSF, and I teach 
uh, mathematical modeling at UC Berkeley. So I'm going to draw upon some of the uh, general concepts of infectious disease epidemiology and what implications they have for uh, Zika transmission. So uh, when we're dealing with mathematical modeling, uh, modeling is often a way that you can bring together data from a number of different sources and then uh, try to make um, predictions or uh, qualitative, uh, qualitative or logistic predictions from that. Uh, so we bring together knowledge we have of the pathogen, the Zika virus, the vector, um, Aedes aegypti or Albopictus, um, the human population, the contact patterns, and the interventions. And um, today I'll be talking more in terms of qualitative uh, predictions because we don't have a lot of data in order to do uh, validation. So some of the questions that uh, we're interested in in terms of uh, Zika transmission and uh, the insight that modeling may provide are what are the implications that the current outbreak has in Latin America uh, for transmission in the U.S.? Uh, what is the expected time course of the current outbreak in Latin America? Uh, is Zika here to stay? What do we expect to happen in the long term in Latin America and elsewhere? What impact uh, can we expect vector control interventions to have on Zika transmission um, in terms of the incidence of Zika generally and also Zika-induced microcephaly? Uh, and if a vaccine were to become available then what impact would we expect that to have on the transmission dynamics? Um, and finally, uh, what are the potential implications of um, recently discovered sexual transmission of Zika virus? So uh, when we're modeling these uh, infectious diseases, we often have a very um, basic uh, conceptual framework that we, we begin with. And uh, this is a paper recently published by uh, Adam Kuchaski and others at the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. Uh, basically, humans move from susceptible to latently infected to infected and infectious, and then to recovered. And um, there's some evidence that for a lot of mosquito arboviruses, then there is uh, long-term immunity following the infection. And then mosquitoes move from susceptible to uh, latently infected to infectious, and they generally um, they die quickly enough that you don't need to worry about their recovery. Um, but there are a number of parameters here in terms of the latent period, the infectious period, and um, in both the mosquito and the human uh, that we're interested in getting an understanding of so we can model the predicted dynamics. Um, so Kuchaski and colleagues at the London School fitted uh, this model to the outbreak in French Poly Polynesia. And uh, these are the, uh, the dots, are the data points for incidents over time, and then you see the trajectory. And uh, interestingly, one of the findings that they had was that um, these, uh, this outbreak in French Polynesia was predicted to infect 76% of the people in Marquis, 89% of the people in Sous-Levant, and 95% in Maria. So it has a um, susceptible population that it just spreads into, and then um, the herd immunity threshold that people were talking about in the last session um, is what seems to slow it down. Interestingly, the epidemic finished prior to the seasonal 
rains finishing, so it finished prior to the mosquito population declining. So it seems that the herd immunity threshold is what caused that reduction, um, the end of the outbreak. Um, and this is just a visualization of, um, of R0, or the basic reproductive number, and how that relates to the um, herd immunity threshold. So if we have an R0 of 2, then um, one person can infect two other people on average. But if one of those people is immune due to a prior infection, then they only infect one person on average. So as soon as half the population in that case is infected, uh, then you're going to have less than one infection per individual infection, which leads to a slowing down of the epidemic. Um, whereas if R0 is 3, then the epidemic doesn't start slowing down until you infect two-thirds of the population, and then each individual infection will lead to less than one other infection. Um, so the higher R0 is, the basic reproductive number, then uh, the larger the outbreak size is going to be. And in terms of the implications for Latin America, then um, this is a study done by Alex Perkins um, at Notre Dame. And um, they, um, and colleagues, they um, estimated Arnold from a number of sources. Um, they did species uh, mapping for Aedes aegypti and Albopictus, which informed the mosquito population size. They had uh, temperature-determined mosquito death rate and virus incubation rate. And they used that to inform um, the distribution of R0 throughout Latin America. And you can see in uh, the red there, the R0 is around 4 to 5. The crimson, it's greater than 5. Um, so for these R0s, you would expect very high um, infection outbreak sizes before you would see uh, the outbreak slowing down. Uh, on the order of what you see in uh, French Polynesia, these are actually the outbreak sizes here, which... Uh, correspond directly to the uh, naught. Uh, so due to heterogeneity in the population, you may not see as high, um, an out but definitely more than half of the um, population where, the, where you see the red there, you would expect them to be eventually infected in this outbreak. Uh, this is a modeling study by Sharon Buick at University of Maryland. Um, and they ask, uh, you know, what are the long-term um, dynamics of this epidemic? And when you do have an epidemic which spreads into the population initially and infects the majority of the population, then um, because most of the population are essentially immunized, then you will have a long time to wait before there are enough susceptibles as discussed earlier, um, to generate the, the newborns who will be susceptible, and then you have another outbreak. Um, and that's what they predict there. Like, say, you know, within a decade, you might get another smaller outbreak. Um, these are actually dynamics that we, would, uh, that we predict for rubella, uh, which is another immunizing infection um, with, with potential complications if the mother is infected. And we have one really massive outbreak in a fully susceptible population. Um, then around 15 years later, a slightly smaller or much smaller one, and then a much smaller one. And um, then the, uh, the graph on the right there shows the outbreak um, in an endemic state. So after a number of years, it reaches an equilibrium. And the equilibrium level is actually a fraction of a percent of the, um, the initial outbreak. So... Um, we would expect these sorts of diseases to continue to, well, to persist 
um, but at a very low level. And another interesting point is that once it reaches this endemic state, then the majority of people who are infected are actually going to be the, um, the newborns or the, you know, the children, because by the time you get to uh, the age of adulthood, then you've already been infected. Uh, which raises interesting questions um, regarding vaccines, um, because, uh, so with rubella, one of the questions that we have to ask with vaccines is, so on the right, we have the vaccine being implemented after the endemic state, and um, the, um, as you vaccinate, the rate at which people are exposed to infection declines, and that means that um, the average age of infection increases. So you're going to be older by the time you actually become infected. And you can have a situation where um, infection prevalence among, or incidence among 20 to 30-year-olds, which are the blue and purple lines, is actually higher than it was prior to the vaccination, which is something you need to think about, be aware of for, um, for um, pathogens or infections of particular concern among childbearing age. Um, and the same applies to vector control. These aren't arguments for not implementing control interventions, but just that if we're going to do a control intervention and we have an infection which um, is relevant to people of childbearing age, then we can't be half-assed about it. We have to go all out. Um, so here, this is, in this study, uh, they showed that if you reduce the mosquito biting rate by a half, then you could actually lead to an increase in cumulative cases among um, women of childbearing age, just because you reduce the number of bites, infectious bites, but the age, the average age at which people become infected is older, and therefore you can have more infections among the age of concern. Um, but as we see in the U.S., we've had what, 150 or so introduced cases, as um, Professor Rutherford pointed out. And um, here, the R0 is, is less than one. I imagine it, it, maybe it's close to one in the southern states. So one infection may lead to slightly less than one other infection. Um, and so we only expect to have small outbreaks on, you know, small chains of transmission by chance. Um, and if we were to implement significant uh, vector control in Latin America or elsewhere, in places where dengue has invaded or are at risk of an invasion with Zika, um, then if we can implement vector control, then effectively um, we can reduce the R0 to below one and only have these small-scale um, outbreaks. Um, and finally, just to comment on sexual transmission. So at the moment, we only have uh, evidence of um, transmission from male to female in the semen. Um, so that obviously wouldn't lead to um, transmission in the population because you would just have a dead end with each female. So it's not going to lead to outbreaks, uh, maybe the, the odd case. Um, the, the only, when you talk about sexually transmitted infections, you need to think about the heterogeneity in the population and um, the only thing you could really expect here is a um, chain of transmission among MSM, the men who have sex with men population, um, which would be limited by the network that they're in, but then it doesn't lead to complications in the woman of childbearing age, um, probably. So, um, so of more concern is the vector-borne transmission and encouraging mosquito abatement um, activities. Thanks.
Thanks. Our last speaker this morning is Dr. Alex Pollan, who is an expert here at UCSF on the formation of the human cerebral cortex. Uh, here you go. Uh, just so you have it. Um, this one, actually. So if, you need, if you need a zapper. All right. Thank you for the introduction. I'll briefly talk about how the human brain normally develops. I'll compare and contrast genetic forms of microcephaly with viral-induced microcephaly. And then I'll talk to you about our latest thinking of the cellular and molecular mechanisms by which Zika virus could cause microcephaly. So when we're born, all the neurons of our cerebral cortex, the folded structure that occupies 80% of our brain, have already been generated. Most of these neurons are born during mid-stages of uh, fetal neurogenesis. If we take a cross-section, um, let's see, if we take a cross-section of the developing telencephalon, we can see that neural stem cells line the, sorry. Neural stem cells line the uh, ventricular zone. They surround the lateral ventricles. Um, these radial glia neural stem cells generate neurons directly or indirectly, which then migrate along the long basal fibers of these yellow um, cells in the schematic to reach precise layers of the cortical plates. Um, multiple genetic disorders can impact this developmental process, leading to improper brain development and also to microcephaly. Um, microcephaly is defined by a head size um, less than two or three standard deviations from the mean. And there's about two to 12 cases of microcephaly per 10,000 births in the US. Now, the symptoms include intellectual disability, developmental delay, motor skill defects, vision problems, and hearing loss. And the symptoms can really vary based on the type of microcephaly. So, some genetic microcephaly disorders leave the brain structure relatively intact, but simply reduce the size. And these people do a lot better, but other forms are much more severe. Um, studies from human genetics in uh, families with naturally occurring mutations have now isolated at least uh, six genes in the genome that, when mutated, can cause this disorder. And there's this incredible coherence among the microcephaly genes. They're all expressed by these radioglia neural stem cells and progenitor cells, and they all regulate key aspects of cell cycle. So that suggests that this founder population is especially uh, vulnerable and a path towards causing microcephaly. Um, can viruses cause microcephaly? Um, we know that they can. We talked about this earlier. Um, here's a picture. Sorry, this uh, isn't working. Here's a picture of a newborn infant with microcephaly. These white arrowheads um, point to uh, calcifications just by the ventricular zone where these neural stem cells lie. And in the uh, other section, you can see that in addition to the brain being smaller, um, the folding is greatly reduced. It's uh, lysencephalic. The cortex is also thinner, and there's hydrocephalus. So in some cases, these viral forms can induce much more severe forms of microcephaly. Does Zika virus cause microcephaly? What do we know so far? Um, a study published just on Friday 
is probably the largest study to date. Um, this followed uh, 42 women who came to a flu clinic and were positively identified as having Zika virus through PCR through the pregnancy and um, identified fetal abnormalities in 12 out of the 42 cases, um, including uh, two fetal deaths in mothers infected at um, gestational week 27 and 32, very late in the pregnancy. Um, a control group of women who came in with fever, zero out of 16 had uh, fetal abnormalities. And in five of these cases, there was also growth defects or microcephaly, um, ventricular calcifications, and reduction in amniotic fluid in seven of the cases. Um, in addition, a recent case study showed um, in a microcephalic brain um, that there were the same calcifications and uh, lysencephalic pattern I showed earlier, and also that there were flavivirus particles in the brain and Zika virus genome sequence was positively identified in the brain. In addition, about a third of the microcephalic uh, infants so far have also had ocular defects, um, including uh, atrophy of the retina and uh, hypoplasia of the optic disc. Um, so what cells does Zika virus target during development? We already heard about uh, potential cellular and molecular pathways for entrance into the placenta. Um, and we hypothesized that in the brain, Zika virus might be targeting these neural stem cells, the radioglia population. And uh, many labs, including our own, are now modeling human cortical neurogenesis in vitro by differentiating induced pluripotent stem cells into the community of cells that we see during normal cortical development. Um, paper published on Friday showed uh, that Zika virus um, in green here uh, directly um, can infect cultured neural progenitor cells in vitro. And interestingly, that the virus preferentially infected these neural progenitor cells over immature neurons and other cell types. Um, in addition, viral infection directly uh, caused in vitro increased uh, apoptosis. You know, this uh, red mark here is a marker of apoptosis in these cultured neural stem cells. Another paper released online generated cerebral organoids. This is a suspension culture of cells um, in figure A and B, and showed that if you infect these organoid models of cortical development, it reduces the overall size of uh, the structure during development. Um, so what are the roots of neuroinvasiveness? Why does the virus target these neural stem cells selectively. Um, as Susan mentioned earlier, um, studies of other flaviviruses, such as dengue virus, have highlighted a number of candidate entry receptors and attachment factors um, that uh, are candidate routes. And in addition, a recent study um, in skin cells highlighted four genes illustrated here that can most directly uh, lead to viral infection. Um, in addition to the E protein, these phosphatidylserine residues pictured in uh, green here can directly interact with TIM and TAM receptors, including AXL that was mentioned, um, or through the ligand of AXL to induce viral endocytosis. Um, in our lab, we've been studying molecular features of neural stem and progenitor cells during normal cortical development through a technique called uh, single cell RNA sequencing. So this is a uh, 
tiny set of microfluidics here. I got it now. And the red arrow is pointing to a uh, single cell that we've captured. We've captured hundreds of these cells during cortical development, and we could use this information to look at the expression of candidate entry factors um, in normal fetal human development. Um, what we found is that uh, multiple candidate entry receptors and attachment factors showed high expression. The cells are in columns here in radial glia neural stem cells, as well as in microglia and endothelial cells. In particular, AXL showed very high and selective expression in the radial glia neural stem cells. And uh, we decided to look further at this, uh, as this was the only receptor shown to be necessary and sufficient for uh, infection of skin cells. Um, this is... Uh, picture, the bottom is the ventricular zone that I showed you earlier, and the top is the pia, the outside of the cortex. Um, SOX2 here labels neural stem cells, the radial glia, and we see very strong AXL expression in these germinal zones where the radial glia neural stem cells are found. If we zoom in, we can see that the expression of the protein is specific to these SOX2 positive neural stem cells, but not found in the other cell populations here. And we can also see very strong expression at the ventricular surface. All of these red cells extend uh, apical processes to the ventricular surface, um, which we think also express the receptor. And similarly, we see expression at the tips of the basal fibers at the pia, um, and also in blood vessels, which, you know, refer which is consistent with the single-cell endothelial data we had obtained. And this suggests possible... Uh, entry points both uh, from the cerebrospinal fluid down here and also from blood vessels and by the PIA. Um, yeah, so our model is that we see receptor expression at these uh, key points that suggests a direct path from either edge of the cortex to these neural stem cell populations. Um, we also looked at the developing retina where defects were observed. And in our single cell data, we saw AXL also correlates very strongly with uh, stem cell markers. And we could see very high expression in the ciliary marginal zone and also in stem cells of the neural retina. Um, finally, we evaluated whether our in vitro system and other model systems recapitulate AXL expression. Um, so from pluripotent stem cells, we could generate organoid-like models of telencephalon development. And we see at 10 weeks in this ventricular-like zone that emerges in vitro, very strong expression of AXL. So this suggests that our in vitro system, and also we looked in mouse and ferret, that these other model systems could be used to study some aspects of uh, Zika virus infectivity um, through this candidate receptor AXL and the potential downstream consequences. In conclusion, there's strong published evidence that Zika virus causes microcephaly and other fetal abnormalities. The Zika virus may directly target radioglian neural stem cells, and our data suggests AXL is a strong candidate entry receptor in the brain. And this leaves several outstanding questions, including what are the consequences of the virus in a larger cohort of pregnant women that includes asymptomatic women um, at the start of the uh, longitudinal study? Why is the Zika virus associated with microcephaly when other flaviviruses that use similar entry receptors are not? Um, is this new strain of Zika virus um, different from previous strains? And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about how the virus might cross the placenta. 
And finally, is this AXL protein really necessary for viral entry and infectivity in the neural stem cells? And uh, this has been effort of a number of people who've come together really quickly at UCSF. Um, Tom Nowakowski and Liz DeLulu in the Kriegstein lab performed the immunohistochemistry. Um, and we've started to work with Hannah Ritalik in Joe DeRisi's lab and also Jeremy Ryder to further follow up on some of these questions about infectivity. And I want to thank Arnold Kriegstein for uh, making the work possible in his lab. Uh, yes, thanks. I just there were a couple that came in on the live stream. Um, one quick one, maybe. Are there any public domain omics studies on Zika available on SRA or other databases that you know of? Um, I actually put up a, a, a viral website that has access to some information, but there's very little in there on Zika. And the last thing I could find was a paper from 1998. So. Um, <laughs> Not a whole lot. Um, there will be more soon, I'm sure. Yeah, and you can take a look. It's the uh, virology. It's vi. It's in, it's on the site virbrc.org, and you can look up Zika. But there's not much there at this point. And, and then one other uh, question: uh, based on the study of the 42 women, uh, it seems that Zika is dangerous to the fetus in all trimesters. Is that true? Um, yes, that's correct. I think it was a surprise to some people that women infected so late in the pregnancy, even gestational week 32, um, could still have fetal abnormalities and even fetal death. Earlier, we thought there might be a critical period during just cortical neurogenesis, but that does not seem to be the case. Um, I had a question. I was just wondering, it was mentioned earlier that previous exposure to dengue or possibly the vaccination to yellow fever was either making Zika more likely or worsening the clinical outcomes. I was just wondering what sort of the immunological basis for that was at this point, and also if that was influencing any of the modeling of the outbreak. Well, um, what I, and I'm not sure this is working, but what I uh, know is that the dengue virus does, in, you know, the in antibodies to the premembrane protein can enhance ADE or antibody-dependent uh, en enhancement of immune responses. Whether or not that is related to, uh, whether that influences Zika Im uh, immunity and or ADE to Zika is not clear at this point. I wasn't able to find any information regarding that. Certainly we know that the viruses are co-circulating in those populations and we don't know yet if there's, a, if that may be one cofactor in severity of expression and uh, in the infants. Um, I guess in terms of the modeling, then antibody-dependent enhancement is um, accommodated in a lot of models of dengue transmission with multiple serotypes circulating. Uh, but if there's, you know, as there's no evidence for that at the time being, then it hasn't been incorporated into models of uh, Zika transmission. But there's no reason why it couldn't be um, if the evidence arises. Yes. Hi. Good morning. Thank you. Um, to Dr. Pollan's point about timing during pregnancy, I'm receiving a lot of questions about couples trying to conceive and theoretical risk of infection at the time of conception. Are there hypotheses you have or even sort of a, a suspicions about um, infection at time of conception, how that relates to timing of neurogenesis and um, placental development that would suggest whether there's risk for fetal abnormalities in that setting? 
Well, the trophoblast cells of the placenta are the first ones to develop of the embryo, and they're functional by five or six days after fertilization. And it's those cells that attach the embryo to the uterine wall. And they have many of the properties that I described for the invasive trophoblast cell population. They're obviously very difficult to study because of the prohibition of studying embryos uh, in this country. But we think that they're very much like the invasive trophoblast cells that I showed you at seven weeks. And by analogy, one would imagine that they do have the receptors. And so I think there may be effects at the time of conception and reduced rates of implantation, if this is correct. Hi, yes, this question is about the incidence of microcephaly. Uh, you know, I mostly heard about cases in Brazil, and I kind of just recently learned that, you know, we're now getting, maybe the reporting is why we hadn't heard as much about the ones in French Polynesia, and, you know, not enough time has elapsed to know really about Colombia. But um, I was wondering if, you know, they've been comparing the virus, you know, that they found in Uganda with the ones that they're now finding in Brazil, and, you know, how is it, has it mutated, and, you know, it, could that be another reason for more um, microcephaly? And also, um, has there been more severe microcephaly? So um, I think that, so the cases, as was mentioned in the previous session, the cases of microcephaly in, um, in, that occurred in French Polynesia actually were not a signal that was detected originally. They're just now detecting those signals. So those viruses are presumably not available at this time. But if you look at the phylogeny, of the viruses that are available, it's very clear that the Asian strains have emerged rather than the African strains in, in Latin America and in the, UN, the Caribbean. And the question is, what does that have to do with the pathogenesis? And we don't have the answer to that yet. One other question from online. Uh, do we know if the antibodies that neutralize also prevent placental transmission or entry into CNS? I don't have the answer to that. Um, it's not clear really what immunity to Zika really does. We can, for example, use the, uh, uh, the, the congenital CMV model where immunity really is, after, despite decades of knowing that model, we really don't understand how immunity contributes. For, uh, uh, if you look at brand new infections in pregnant women compared to potentially reinfections, um, the rate of infection of the fetus is exactly the same. Um, and so the question is, is that because of reactivation of virus, uh, suppression of T-cell immunity, or is it a re, uh, reinfection with new strains? So we don't have the answers even for existing models. This is a question for Alex. I was just wondering if you could comment on uh, the sorry, sorry on the calcification. Uh, I didn't hear you mention what the mechanism of calcification is. Is that just thought to be due to cell death, or is there actually something else going on there as far as like why there, you actually see calcification in the brains? Right. The question is what causes the uh, calcification of the brains, and uh, this is uh, something that is left over after cell death but it could also be related to uh, interferon responses and innate immune responses in these regions. So, um, yes, cell death plus immune response. 
I think we'll have to stop there. And uh, thank you so much for your attention. And we'll be back here um, after lunch. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.